Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller Karras. Welcome. I am so glad to be here today with you, and I want to welcome my two guests. Audrey Smolkin and Allison Sabula, and today they are going to share their work with the Center on Child Wellbeing and Trauma. We're going to call it CCWT from here on out, but it's a partnership between Massachusetts Office of the Child Advocate and for Health Consulting, um, a University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. CCWT supports child-serving organizations, and I know you're going to tell us about what that means, and systems in becoming trauma-informed and responsive. And I love the term responsive, and we're going to do a deeper dive into what that word means. And you do this through trainings, technical assistance, communities of practice and coaching. So let me share, before we get started with some, some, I think, some good questions about their work, I want to tell you a little bit more about just the accomplishments of these two guests. So Audrey is an MPP, and she's the executive director of CCWT. She's an instructor uh, for the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. And as the former um, director of child and family policy at Commonwealth Medicine, Audrey was instrumental in planning for and launching the center in 2021, which serves as a hub of information, trainings, and technical assistance for Massachusetts child-serving organizations seeking to become trauma-informed and responsive. Um, She's worked for the Clinton administration. She's had really quite a wonderful career. She also has her master's degree in public policy from the University of Chicago and earned her bachelor's degree in psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. And Allison Sabula, MP. PH is the Associate Director of Curriculum Development and Training. She joined the CCWT after three years as the Community Facilitator facilitator at Paces Connection, where we've had um, people from Paces Connection on our show before. But and that's where we met. <laughs> and that's where we met. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, but you, I cannot believe that you produced over 100 virtual events. And my goodness, she has, it, she has been responsible in helping people come to the air. Not only um, CNL actor and comedian Daryl Hammond, trauma experts Bessel van der Kolk, uh, Gabar Mate, and V, um, also known as Eve Ensler. But you've also had Jane Fonda and Michelle Esrick. So, Allison, my goodness, I imagine you have stories. But so, all- yes. I think the greatest moment of my entire life was explaining adverse childhood experiences science to Jane Fonda. <laughs> Amazing. Oh my gosh. I want to hear more about that. Um, because from reading about her life, she she probably had a, quite a few of those. I could be wrong. It's definitely. Yes. And she um she's she's you meet her and you just think this woman has done her trauma healing work. She's so present, so centered. There's zero ego. She's just immediately like, how can I learn from you? I don't care who you are. I have something to learn. She's the most incredible human being. Um, when I 
produced that series to promote the film, uh, Michelle Esrick's film Cracked Up, featuring um, Daryl Hammond's life story, Jane Fonda was a guest and uh, Bessel van der Kolk was a guest. And so they ended up being the first people to hop on the call. So it was just me, Jane and Bessel. Oh, gee, you know, yeah. some, you know, not very, um, the VIPs of trauma and, and yeah. <laughs> my goodness, Allison. But I was like really nervous, like, oh my God. But J- that's just like how Jane Fonda is. She was just like, tell me everything. Like, tell you know, tell me what you're, what you're working on at, at the time it was ACEs connection. And you know, what do you, you know, what's that science? Just, she just had follow-up questions and just, she yeah. would, you know, there's nothing that, or no one that she's like too good for or anything. Well, she's just a I, real human. I love that because there's a humility in being a person when you decide to, to ask you the questions, when you're the kind of the person who's organizing the event. Right. So I appreciate that so much when I encounter people like that. Me too. Well, I just want to say a couple more things about you because you have been on a healing journey and you are a person in recovery. Yeah. And that led to you pursuing a master's of public health from Boston University School of Public Health. In fact, you've connected me to one of your professors, and I'm now a regular presenter at her class. (laughs) (laughs) And and your undergraduate degree is from the University of California, Berkeley, in conservation and resource studies. There's much much more to say about each one of these lovely, lovely women that I have on the show today. And you can go to Voice America Resiliency Within page to read a more complete um, uh, bio for each one of them. But let's get started. Um, I'm going to ask each one of you as we start today, just what's on your mind? Um, you know, there's always world events and things going on. We prepared a number of questions, but Audrey, can I start with you and just see what's on your mind as we're getting started today? Sure. So I will share with you that I have been having a rough few months. We've had some health complications and my mother is quite ill. She was just diagnosed with a very serious illness. And so I went on a walk today, um, really trying to get almost out of my head because I was really struggling with a lot of this. And I came upon what I call a snow porcupine. Somebody had built on a bridge that I was walking over, this beautiful snow covered bridge, a little tiny almost tiny snow person, but they had stuck on the top of it, little pine needles coming out of it. So it looks like a snow porcupine. And it gave me such joy seeing the snow porcupine. I of course had to take a picture and send it to Allison. And I call that sort of glow moments because in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the pain, there are these little moments. And so for me, what was really on my mind was I'm so grateful to have seen this little snow porcupine that kind of made my day. So I'm thinking snow porcupine. Thank you. I mean, I think that those little moments, you know, like in the work that I do, we call them a resiliency pause, but I love the term glow moment because we don't know when we're going to encounter them. They can be a surprise and they can. And I think about glowing. I, I think of the sensation of what it feels like on the inside. And I'm, if you could see her, she's putting her hand to her heart right now, which is such a wonderful <laughs> universal gesture that I've seen all over the world when people actually are experiencing something on the inside that warms them. So thank you for that. So now I'm going to remember glow moments. I have, I have those glow moments can be such tiny things. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be a tiny thing. So thank you for that, um, Audrey. And how about you, Allison? Is there anything that's on your mind right now? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, we were, you know, talking uh, before we went live about um, my friend, Sissy White, who's been um, battling some health challenges the last three years. And so I just want to kind of um, shout out to how much I, I love her. And she has this great term, joy stalking. And I think about it so much <laughs> and, um, and how we have to, it's almost like we have to show up for joy in our life. And so one, um, recent moment of joy that I just like really slowed down, like slowed way down to appreciate was that I, um, last week, uh, one morning I went and got coffee. I splurged, didn't make it at home. I went to the coffee shop and I was sitting there enjoying it. And, um, a guy walked in and he was there to, it became apparent that he was there to meet the guy that was like sitting next to me. And they were so excited to see each other. And it became apparent that this was like a regular meeting. And he was like, oh, is it my turn to pay? Yeah, it's my turn to pay. And they just were so excited to see each other. And then, and they were even like different generations that I just like took the time to just feel that love and excitement and, um, and to just be present with that feeling. So that was a small moment of joy. Oh my oh, God. I love that. I love the term joy stocking. When I was just flying back to see my um, family, my mom, and airports are a great place to joy stock. I've never heard that term before, but now I'm going to collect those <laughs> because you see people, you know, they get out. It used to be at the gate, but now you get out of security and the, the looks on people's faces that they're reunited. I mean, it particularly yes. the first time I flew after COVID, but just in general, the, the connection, the joy connection and how beautiful that is. I love joy stocking. Oh my gosh. I love this. So we have glow moments. We have joy stocking. Okay. Now I'm going to have to share something because something <laughs> recently happened to me. And since we're okay, yeah. talking about challenges that we're having in life, my husband has been recently diagnosed with a really kind of virulent form of cancer. So he was, mm. we were, it was on December 20th and he doesn't like hospitals. So we're actually waiting um, in the surgical unit, the pre-surgical unit for him to go in to have this thing removed. And as we're, we're sitting there, he starts doing this movement where he starts twiddling his thumbs. And when my husband twiddles his thumb, I know that he's probably stressed because it's kind of his self-soothing gesture that we talk a lot about in the community resiliency model. And so I could see that he's a little bit distressed because I'm tracking him, probably mm -hmm. looking for a glow moment, Audrey, at that point, right? <laughs> see if there's anything that I can pull out. So as I see him doing this, I said, you know, honey, while we're waiting, do you remember that first um, vacation we had when we were first married and we went to Lake Tahoe and we were on top of a mountain and we even have a picture of us looking at each other as we're looking out towards that vista. And he, lo he looks at me and, he, and all of a sudden he kind of pauses and he stops. He goes, oh yeah, that was such a beautiful moment. And you could just see his whole body just relax. Talk about a glow moment, right? And then we started talking more about other kinds of things. So I guess that's also not only joy stalking, but joy remembering. Mm. <laughs> to remember those moments in our life that have given us those little sparks mm -hmm. where we can call them up with people that we love that might be going through something difficult and, and maybe reminding them at that moment, what we both have shared that can, we can bring into the present moment, right. That can kind of restore that balance. Just like finding that little snow porcupine that I didn't even know that existed. Now I have a, I have a new image of this little snow. You're going to have to, you're going to have to. Uh, oh, I will send it to you. I'm sending my snow porcupine to everyone. But you know, I love that you in that moment could bring him and yourself so much peace. And as I think about struggle and grieving and the grieving that the world has gone through and the grieving that my own family is handling now, that those moments are so precious because we can pull, pull them back 
back, even in those moments of horrible grief, even yeah. the people stay with us. The, the That beauty, that glow, that joy that we have stocked up, that we get to keep even in the depths of suffering and pain. That's exactly right. That we'll never lose that no matter what happens, no matter what chaos we're living in. And it's, it's what I often say is like, what else is true? Um, and we were talking a little bit about that in the pre-show as, as well about how, yes, this may be happening, but something else could be happening too that can give us that joy moment or glow moment or or even joy stalking, which of course is going to be something new I'm going to add to my vocabulary. But, you know, as, you know, we're going to talk a lot. I want to, of course, talk about the center, but, you know, I'm very inspired by both of you. And I want to ask you, each of you, you know, what has, it, what about your lived experience has inspired you to create the work that you're passionate about in the world? And this time I'm going to start with Allison first, because I'll switch off each time. So Allison, do you want to share it? Would yeah, you, I'd love to. Share a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I am um, like a pretty big activist for trauma-informed in the recovery community. So it's something I speak really openly about. It's not a recent trauma, but when I was a teen, I was a methamphetamine addict and I went to rehab when I was 20 years old and the word trauma never came up once. <laughs> And so the implicit message was like, there was something wrong with me or that I wasn't trying hard enough, you know, oh, like you, your willpower needs to get developed, you know, and those messages were really harmful in a lot of ways that I carried with me. I was 31 years old when I first understood trauma. So we're talking 11 years of carrying around the personal shame of being a defective human being. Mm -hmm. And so once I, um, once I heard <laughs> about the ACEs and trauma, I, there was no other career path for me, you know, and I think that part of it is wanting to protect all the other, you know, people out there just like me who are out there carrying this guilt and shame about everything that they're doing wrong when in fact, um, you know, certain systems have, have failed them. Um, so, you know, there's a lot, I mean, there's so many different levels when you look at the, um, social ecology of neglect and abuse, there's, you know, poverty, there's systemic oppression, um, there's, there's just so many factors. And I think that learning about all these different levels of that create systems that don't support children and families, um, you know, the more that we learn about it, the, the, the more we can heal and the, you know, the less, the less people have to carry around that guilt and shame. So that's what brings me to the work. Well, thank you so much for that. And I think that, you know, I, I often try to say that when we know about trauma-informed, it really is about our biology. And our biology created something that created something inside of us. And, you know, we call it toxic stress. We've talked about toxic stress in the show. But when there's something about learning that it's about biology rather than mental weakness or pathology that right. is liberating. Right. And I just, and I, and I, if we could just get that in the water for people to understand how might it change our world. And I know that's one of the things that you all are doing at the CCWT. So I can't wait to hear more about it, but we have to first, Audrey, your story, you know, what, what has inspired you um, to create this work that you do from your lived experience? Well, first, I just really want to thank Allison for sharing her story, because I think that so many people who have had trauma, who have had substance use disorder, really do bury it and 
Therefore, we don't get to benefit from seeing that strength and that resilience. And I am just so grateful that she shared that and so grateful Allison joined the team. I laugh because it feels like Allison has been with us since day one, but she actually just joined us a few months ago and has already done transformative work in the center because she came back to Boston. She had to get back to Boston. There you go. I know. We needed her. We needed her. So it was meant to be. Um, But what drew me to the work, I am the descendants of family members who had been in the Holocaust. And I was really shaped by the experience of growing up, hearing about the Holocaust, hearing about anti-Semitism and hearing about the danger of othering, that when we see people as defective human beings, when we see others as so different than our basic humanity, the danger that can come from that. Um, The Holocaust is an extreme case, but I think we see almost every day the danger that comes from looking at other people, children, and saying, you're defective, you're less than. And what what really cut across state systems, I had worked in state systems that looked at children's issues for years and years. And the one thing that cut across every single state system, whether you look at juvenile justice or child welfare or economic support systems, the one thing that cut across all of them was trauma and not recognizing how foundational that trauma is to the way a child or a family turns out in the world, the way they can show up in the world. And I really believe that any effort we make to get the families and children more healthy benefits, all of us, because none of us are throwaway, none of us are truly defective. Um, You mentioned at the top of the hour that I went to Penn and our convocation speaker was Maya Angelou, who is by far one of my absolute, I know, I know, how lucky. Same way, same way. (laughs) It was really interesting because I had arrived at Penn, I had um, really not been away from home very much. I was very scared. I was very, very introverted. And the way she spoke at that convocation was so beautiful and engaging that I felt myself have strength growing, almost this feeling of of really growing it inside me. But she said one of the quotes she's very famous for, which was, nothing human is truly foreign to me. And that connection of... We often look at other children who look different or a different background or who didn't get the benefits, the luck of being born into certain families or ways of being that allowed them to thrive. And we say, you're you're not as much, you're not as good. And so I came into this work with the perspective of wanting desperately to see the resilient humanity of every single person and make that possible for the kids of Massachusetts. We were a good state for kids in general. But we're not necessarily the best state when it comes to some issues in terms of supporting kids of color, kids who come from poverty, kids who are necessarily different. And so that really drew me into the the work. Well, so as you start to talk about your, actually, you started talking about the work already, but thank you so much for sharing about your your family's history and how that really did propel you to look at life in a different way and to be very focused on how do we, how do we change systems that we weren't responsible for creating? And yet here we are with maybe some opportunities and thoughts on how to make that different. But the first question I have for you is, so the center, um, um, on child well-being and trauma is really very new. It only opened in November of 2021. We're just in, what is it, February 2023. So how did the center get started? How, how did this all come to be? And I imagine that is an Audrey's bucket. So 
Go ahead. I'll, I'll <laughs> yes. take a crack at it. And yes. then Allison always adds value. So chime on in. So for years, the Office of the Child Advocate had really been looking at issues related to trauma. They had a legislatively mandated trauma task force, childhood trauma task force. And they had been looking similarly at what can we do to really enhance child well-being for all children, particularly those that touch state systems, but all children in general. At the same time, I had been through my work at UMass um, working on on a program called Trauma, Race, and Resilience. We had been putting on seminars across the state, really focusing on the intersection of trauma and race and building resilience. And so I had reached out to the child advocate who is an amazing, incredible woman um, named Maria Masadis and her colleague, Melissa Threadgill, and said, how can we partner on trying to do some of this work? They got, we had, we started with, my work started with a $20,000 tiny, tiny little grant that we did some resilience work on early childhood education. And then working with the Office of the Child Advocate that grew to $300,000 the first year to do extended work in building resilience children and then 1.3 million and we're now at 3.5 million and I have to really it is amazing to not only the legislators that made that happen and the office of the child advocate also for my organization we're now called for health which I think is a great name because we are literally for the health and well-being of children all of these sectors had to come together. So the state medical school really partnering, the legislators, the Office of the Child Advocate to build this, to really believe in trying to get to true child well-being. So the pieces fit together and launched, and we've been pretty busy ever since. Oh, my goodness. This has really been a passionate um, endeavor, hasn't it? I mean, all these people coming together to create this because it's like you created something when there was nothing. I mean, I think that's what's so amazing to me is that when you have these ideas, these ideas are the seedlings. And then some of them grow. And it sounds like you have a pretty solid oak tree that's, that's growing. You know, it's amazing to me because I've been in public policy for, as you said, I was in the Clinton administration. So that certainly dates me. I've been around a while. It is very rare that you get policy recommendations, all of which came out of this task force, and then it gets turned into policy and program. What often happens is we have task forces and we come together, they make a lot of recommendations, and then everyone wanders off. But the fact that it actually came together in a functional way and could really truly launch, I don't know if we're a giant oak tree. We're, we're like a teenage oak tree getting stronger and stronger okay, every day. We're toddlers. Yes, we're <laughs> toddlers, but still an oak tree nonetheless. Well, I mean, you've said a little bit of this, but this might be something you both can con- contribute to. But so that there was an identified need. I always think about Massachusetts as being ahead of the game. You've got so many trauma centers there. You've got Bessel van der Kolkus from, from that part of the world. You know, people who've put, you know, embodied trauma on the map. Mm -hmm. And so how did it exactly come about? You know, I I hear that you, you know, there are different people that came together, but how did you identify the need? So if other states are thinking about doing something similarly, how did you get to that point? I would really say to other states that are looking into this to start by looking at their data. What's going wrong for kids? And when you really identify kids entering these state systems that should not be there, they're there because of intergenerational trauma, they're there because Mm -hmm. of poverty, they're there because of the trauma of the child. It's a very powerful argument to be able to go to legislators and say, let's focus on these kids. There's an old um, story, I think it's actually... Polish, but I might be wrong on that, that there was a little town and they were all coming together and they looked at this pond that was at the bottom of a waterfall and they 
they saw a kid in the pond and they went and they hurried and all of them jumped in and they rescued the kid and they pulled the kid out really quickly and they all came together to do it. And then there was another kid and quickly they scrambled and they scrambled and they pulled the kid out till finally someone looked up and said, who's throwing in all of these kids? And I think it's a powerful argument that came together to say, stop throwing in the kids. What prevention work can we do so that organizations that come in contact with kids can stop throwing them in? You know, we we tend as a society to come together in crisis. I don't know if you guys remember many, many years ago, there was a little girl, Jessica, and she fell in a well and had to be rescued. Yeah. Right. We'll never forget her. And I'm so glad that she was okay. We are good in a crisis. We as Americans are good in a crisis. Um, I think it is a very human instinct. You see the kid in the water. What we're not always as good about is what can we do to promote the resiliency and reduce the trauma so the kids don't fall in the well? I don't mean this one particular kid, but you know who's throwing them over and what can we do to change the systems that really and are maybe letting our even kids down? covering up the ground so the hole wasn't there to fall into right. exactly. <laughs> Just those things. Yes. we build holes for kids to fall into whether that hole is poverty or food deserts or racism we are building these holes what can we so do how, to cover them? so how is the center the solution that's needed right now and maybe allison can contribute to that sure i, I can i can try um you know, the programs that my team um, is working on are so inspiring to me. I love working with communities. That's my favorite. Um, just meeting people and hearing their stories and their challenges and helping them figure out how to build stronger communities. I, it's like my dream work and I get to do it every day. So I love it. And um my favorite is when we meet with the communities um, that we're working with, we have this coaching academy. So we got applications from community initiatives. So people who wanted to build something new in their town or county um, in Massachusetts that implemented trauma-informed or trauma-responsive science in some sort of new way. And we got all these amazing applications from people all over the state, and we chose only six of them, even though we wanted to choose all of them. (laughs) You'll get more money next year. Yeah, next year. (laughs) I have to just pause. Allison, at every meeting, when we went through the very hard selection process, at every single meeting, Allison was saying, but what about that one? And what about that one? She just wanted to bring them all home. I did. I did. Um, I was also, I, as a kid, I wanted every stuffed animal on my bed. I couldn't choose just one. I needed all 30 of them. <laughs> so well, um, I actually think you're in a very good position because sometimes, again, when there's that idea of how else to get the money, sometimes it can show up. If you don't have the idea that it's possible, right. it may not occur. And those of us that are, innovators, you know, they call us social entrepreneurs. That's the fancy name yeah. because we think about changing these kinds of systems. You know, I can't believe we're almost time for our break. Um, and um, we're going to, we're going to be coming back and talking to, to both of them. I can just see this is definitely going to have to be a part one and part two. Um, I, I can tell this already <laughs> because I think we've gotten to like one question so far. <laughs> Very robust dialogue, but I, I'd love to hear about some of the programs um, when we get back from the break that, um, that made the six, cause they must've been pretty amazing. Proposals. They're pretty amazing. Yeah. Yes. And so, and were they only in like rural areas or were they rural and in city centers? We tried to pick an, an array. 
you know? So, um, you know, we kind of focused on communities that maybe um, had diverse populations that they were serving and we didn't want to pick initiatives that were all doing the same thing. So, um, it, and, you know, also additionally, since it's, we're um, giving grants out to these communities, we maybe tried to pick communities that didn't always have access to other grant funding. So, th so that was some of our great ideas, ideas that maybe hadn't had the, the opportunity before yeah. to be able to, to win something like this, to yes. be able to create, I guess, um, a more responsive community, because I want to hear about the definitions of that. So we're going to be back in just a, a couple of minutes. Um, we're going to be hearing from our sponsor, the Trauma Resource Institute, that is the sponsor for this program um, during the break. And we have more to hear from Audrey Smolkin and from Allison Zwilla about the Center on Child Wellbeing and Trauma in Massachusetts. And also they're going to tell us after the break, so you got to come back, about how to get in touch with them if you want to learn more about the center. And I imagine they take donations too. Do you take donations? We actually don't, largely oh. because there's no mechanism by which we well, want maybe, to maybe. Well, maybe you'll start. Who knows? But at least you'll know where to go. Okay, so we'll be back in just in just a couple of minutes and, and be speaking more to these wonderful ladies who are, will tell us more about their journey and this wonderful program that they're bringing into Massachusetts. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma informed and resiliency focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. 
Welcome back. This is Elaine Miller-Karras, and I am so honored to have Audrey Smolkin and Allison Sabula from the Center on Child Wellbeing and Trauma from the state of Massachusetts. And they've been sharing um, this wonderful new organization and also some of the, um, the wonderful things that are coming out of it. So we're gonna, we were talking to Allison about some of the projects that are coming out. And if you can maybe tell us a little bit about some of the, I guess what we're calling solutions, right? People have come to you, you've, you've given six awards out and you have people working within the state trying to manifest their ideas into reality. So give us some ideas about what people are doing. Yeah, there's so many good ones. Um, there's one, it's it's a, in the Springfield area that's doing the music. Um, yeah, that one we just love because as I'm sure you all know, Elaine, you know, music is very regulating. And I personally would love to see so many more music and arts based interventions when it comes to trauma healing, because this is truly how we transform suffering, you know, um, through, through music and art and dance. And I just would love to see so, so many more creative endeavors. And, um, I don't know if, if this is still happening, but it feels like, you know, the arts kind of started to get cut from education and it's like, no, like we, like we need those. Um, so that one is really inspiring to me. It's a, it's a music intervention that we're helping them expand. Um, and then we have, um, one, it's an expansion of the handle with care program. I don't know if you've had anyone talk about that on your show before, but it's a collaboration between the police department and um, school systems to ensure that children who um, whose families may be coming into contact with the criminal justice department are handled with care at school. So it's really heightening communication, increasing compassion, um, and it's it's an amazing cross-sector intervention, which is really hard. And what's really inspiring to me especially working with that team is seeing um, folks from the police department, police uh, folks from the hospital, folks from K through 12, they all get on this call and they all have one goal to help improve the lives of children in their community. And that, it makes me tear up. (laughs) Well, you know, I've heard about programs like this, if it's the same thing that I'm thinking about, but oftentimes when there's been, let's say a domestic violence in, um, episode at someone's house and they have to go to school the next day, the child may be completely out of their zone. When they come to school, they haven't brought their homework. The teacher goes, where's your homework? Why didn't you do your homework? And, you know, they aren't necessarily going to share what happened to them. And so you have another way that we re-traumatize children inadvertently, not with intention. So these kind this kind of program really is to try to be a safety net for the child when those kinds of things happen with all the important players coming to the table. Is that my understanding? Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And not only to really handle, it used to be called the red envelope program because teachers would get this red envelope. Mm. I think what's unique about handle with care, and we have a little fantasy that handle with care will become the norm throughout all, I think, 300 plus school districts that we have in Massachusetts. The really amazing thing is it says not only support this child, handle them with care, don't push them on their homework, understand that maybe they didn't eat or sleep all of those pieces, but also get them community support. So what we now know is kids who are witness to violence, whether it's domestic violence or shooting in their neighborhood or some other form to violence, they have huge emotional injuries that are almost never addressed. In fact, they tend to carry around more trauma in some ways than the child who the violence was perpetrated against because Mm -hmm. that child gets help. 
they are the identified victim. Kind of going back to what I was saying about we're good at crisis. We'll deal with this right. child who was the identified victim. We often don't support the kids who witnessed that or who have seen a parent um, overdose. There's been a huge crisis nationally, obviously in Massachusetts as well. Really saying what supports does that child need to move forward? So handle them with care by getting them to a supportive environment. So it's a good community partnership. Well, this may be the, the a perfect segue for the next question. And, and what, what makes trauma responsive different from trauma informed? So the way we look at it, and I will say some states that do amazing work, Oregon is on my mind right now, have switched the words to say, you know, whether you're trauma responsive or trauma informed. In Massachusetts, the way we look at it is trauma informed means you have the knowledge, you've been taught you know, this is what happens to a child's brain. This is what happens to a child's body when they experience trauma. And therefore, this is how they may show up differently. So that's core knowledge. What it isn't really is how you best respond to that child, how you best embrace that child to give them the infrastructure supports that they need to get to better well-being. So I look at it as the difference between knowing Johnny picked up the chair and threw it is trauma-informed. I know that's why he did it. Trauma-responsive is then going over to Johnny and saying, sounds like you're having a lot of feelings right now and figuring out a way to work with Johnny within our guiding principles of safety and transparency and trust. And I can go into all five of them, but it's really the action. It's saying, take the knowledge that we have, kind of what Allison was saying about public health. You learned this tremendous amount. To be a true public health practitioner is going out in the world and saying, how do I use that knowledge? Our goal is that every single state system, every system that comes in contact with children, every organization that touches a child is trauma responsive so that they have the tools to respond differently to that child based on what has happened to that child. Well, I think what you're saying to me is the key. I, you know, Having been someone who's been working in this field for a long time, I, I have felt that one of the Achilles heels of trauma-informed was not having the next step. And, you know, in our, you know, the model that, that I'm in responsible for, which is the community resiliency model, we talk about it being resiliency informed and focused, but we know that resiliency can be a loaded word right now. Responsive is not. And I think right. we're talking about the same thing. And it's just so important that we have what, what else is true. A, a, a person on our board is a family practice doctor in California. And so they all, all the family practice doctors that received public aid had to take a course learning about ACEs. And so she said to me, it was a great course, you know, I learned about ACEs, but I know that we don't have the resources for me to help all the children and adults that I identify as having high ACEs in our community. And so what I'm, what I'm hearing you all say is this is what you're trying to do, is how do we create those resources? And maybe we have to just start with six, but those six didn't exist until you gave them these grants to make this happen. So I don't know if you can want to elaborate upon what I'm saying, because I think I've seen that practically in every state of the union. And I, I would hate for our listeners to leave uh, this conversation thinking that we're only helping six communities. Um, <laughs> I was thinking that I did that too, and I bet our funders would too. Just six communities. We know that there's more, but there's the ones that first got the grant. Yes, please. We have an array of programs. And so that's just one of our the coaching academy is one of our thank you for correcting me yeah <laughs> we are also in 50 schools we are working with um 30 congregate care sites that support um dcf involved 
youth. We are working in family shelters to try to make them more trauma responsive. So I'll send you a beautiful map where we are across the entire state, um, which has been something, you know, it's interesting when we built this, I had a moment when I was working really closely with the funder and saying, great, we've built this. What if nobody comes? It's the opposite of if you build it, will they come? And Um, luckily or unluckily, COVID hit relatively soon after we had started building. um, And the need is so high right now. If you look nationally, over um, 42% of teenagers are expressing that they have depression and anxiety. And if you just look at the society as a whole, there's a lot of pain and struggle. So I would say our biggest challenge is actually meeting the need um, and being there for organizations and really trying to do some of the systemic change. We do damage as a society, as a government. So what can we do to reduce some of that trauma? Well, so let me ask you this about about the different programs that you have. Let's say you're a person in Massachusetts right now and you're suffering and you know your child is suffering and um, you're hearing about trauma-informed And so how would they get services? Would they contact you and you would connect them to services in their community? How how does a system work that you're trying to to implement um, within within Massachusetts? Great question. So I will put two, if I can put things in the chat that people will actually see, I'm going to put two web addresses or I'll get them to you and we can publicize them a different way. So sadly on Voice America, they won't be able to see that, but on Facebook Live, they will. Okay. Well, at least we'll get it out a little bit. One of them is really geared towards parents and it's handholdma.org. And that's a great place for parents to go if they're struggling and their child is struggling. And they also can get directed to the Family Resource Center. So I'll put that email address as well. We have a network of soon to be 33 Family Resource Centers across the entire state. So if they're in Massachusetts, that can really direct them to a place that they can get a lot of support. Our website, Child Wellbeing and Trauma, Um, is a great resource for organizations. We really focus our thought behind it. So we don't do direct care to kids and families. Um, Our skill set is really around doing transformational work for those organizations that come into contact with kids so that we are trying to, we just hired somebody um, today, actually, if Brianne is listening, (laughs) an organization that had starfish in it and really talking about how you save one starfish at a time when they wash up on the beach. I think we have lots of places we can refer out parents to. We're more the, hey, why are there so many starfish on the beach? Let's teach people not to land a bunch of starfish on the beach. Well, and, so so that's kind on. of the next question you're answering a little bit, but maybe to elaborate upon it a little bit is that why is it important to work with the organizations as a whole toward being more trauma responsive? Why is that important? I think for two reasons, and I feel like I'm dominating and not making space for Allison, who is so brilliant. So please chime on in, Allison, after this comment. I think two things. We will never have enough resources for every single child because I think there is so much need. We're right now, mental health waiting lists are extremely long. Um, Although Massachusetts did a great behavioral health reform and is trying to get more resources out there. The thought is that every kid, you're not going to necessarily even know some children have trauma in their background. So every organization needs to be trained to see every child in the most positive resiliency building way, because some of these children don't even identify, and we don't know about their adverse childhood experiences or their lack of positive childhood experiences for some kids till very far down the line. But by having schools, by having family resource centers, by having congregate care sites support these kids on the organizational level, we can really change that trajectory from one of negative outcomes due to all of the 
potential aces to one of more positive outcomes. Well, and, but- and maybe that leads into the next question that maybe that, that Allison can, can weigh in on that. Well, what does it mean to build community resilience? I know you were working very much with PACES and now with, with the center. Can you give us your vista about that? Yeah, and I I want to speak to why it's important to to work on these bigger system levels is just the the impact that it can have. You know, like these organizations serve so many hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people. So if you can change the organization that runs these programs, you are impacting so many lives. And you know, a lot of regular people or regular parents don't actually have the power to make any change. And so I'm consistently thinking about power dynamics when I'm reviewing and designing curriculum. How can we help people who have power see their power and understand that they can be a force for good if they could make a really big change happen? Um, And how do we make space for for, um, people to feel comfortable asking for what they need, challenging power, changing systems. It's interesting because lots and lots of different types of people may want to make change, but who, who actually can, you know? And so I think that's one of the biggest opportunities that we have. We're, we're kind of given a lot of power, like, Hey, like you can work with agencies and organizations and communities all throughout the state. Um, It's, it's an enormous gift that we've been given to make a huge impact. Um, And so on the community level, I mean, right. So that's like the top down kind of maybe, you know, but then there is the bottom up, which, which is also very beautiful. And um, so then you can kind of take, you, you can empower someone that maybe doesn't have as much power once they join a coalition of other people. And then that becomes its, its own very strong network. So um, I, I think we're doing a lot of, of both you know, and, um, that is what's, is what's needed. You know, those people at every different level, understanding trauma science, adverse childhood experiences, science, and how is this going to transform our community? Like maybe like on an individual level, you may have a parent that finally understands that say spanking is just not (laughs) something that you're going to want to do to your kid if you want them to be resilient as an adult. And so they're going to decide that they want to make that change. And then they go to church and they tell everyone at church and they get 10 other parents to change. And then those parents say, hey, like, what else can I learn about trauma? Like, let's change our schools, you know? And so there's such power in that um, grassroots level where, you know, people who are empowered to change, you know, change the, the others around them. I often call that the well-being contagion rather than the other stress contagion that we are so focused on because I've seen that happen. And it's like, you know, the proverbial pebble in the stream and how it, you know, ricochets out and affects every single person. And so, you know, I also am really struck too, just from what you said too, about your journey, Allison, uh-huh. it took you 11 years to find out about trauma-informed. Yeah. So I can see that this is also about organizations understanding trauma-informed because not every organization exactly. knows that. And how do they, I mean, is there something about trying to help organizations become trauma-informed about the work that you're doing in terms for themselves? Because I've seen other, I've seen institutions going, oh, trauma-informed is really important. And so they're spreading trauma-informed information, but they themselves are not very trauma-informed. Yeah, I I have a good example. (laughs) Um, 
when I um, was getting my master's in public health at BU, um, I did some qualitative research with um, the San Diego Community College System, and I interviewed a career counselor and a dean about um, trauma-informed programming throughout the college and different barriers and facilitators. And the um, the dean that I interviewed said it's not enough, you know, just for students and it's not enough just for faculty to become trauma-informed. We need the parking lot attendant to become trauma-informed because when that student is there and they're crying and they maybe live in their car and that parking lot attendant needs to understand what they're dealing with in that moment. And so our work is not done until every last person knows what trauma is. You know, I'm often, I work a lot with schools, you may know, and I'm often struck by the school custodian who oftentimes knows more about the children that are having a struggle than anyone else because yeah. they're around and they pay attention yeah. and they see the little one that might be by themselves that's not causing trouble in the classroom. And what you're saying to me is so, is so important that if we could just train every, train everyone to understand this, that really is prevention, isn't it? if we can do it in that way. So that's really one of the things that you're focusing on is how you change systems, which I think is so important. Um, so do you have anything else, Audrey, you'd like to say about building community resilience? I think I think of trees when I think of our communities, partially because I'm a nature girl and I am happiest when I'm out in nature, but I had been reading some books about how trees communicate with each other and they actually talk to each other. They warn each other of threats. They, When one is really low and needs something, they can give energy to each other. I think to me, true community resilience is the knowledge that we all sink or swim together. And I don't mm. think that we have generally focused on, we look at a storm like COVID, we look at a storm like the racial injustice that had happened. Some of us were in very different boats. And I think the more that we as a community can say, we need to build a community boat. We need all of the boats to be strong for each other the better off that we will be. And taking some of these projects, these community projects and saying, how can you share with everybody in the community to come together around creating better systems for child well-being? We have communities in the state where kids, it's not safe to go out to play. So the, the most basic level of building resilience can't be there for kids. They don't have safe teachers or trusted adults to talk to. So they don't have trust and transparency. They may not have those healthy relationships. So to me, the very principles that build resilience in every single small human, we need to build for the community as a whole and accept that we're all one system. One tree goes down and it can affect the forest. And I don't think that we always have that perspective. We tend to focus on our tree or our little cops right. of trees, not the whole forest. Well, you know, I'm just wondering about the how to do that. You know, we talk about community resilience and and the how is such a very big, you know, question. Big question. Because, yeah, <laughs> big question. And, and, you know, I've seen many times and been involved with groups where they've talked about what was needed and the community resilience part comes in a lot. We need greater community resilience. And then there's a lot of discussion about what that means. But I think you said it early on, sometimes the, the implementation of the change to make that happen doesn't. And it sounds like you're very interested in making that change happen. So could you know one or both of you talk about, okay, how? I know you have the projects and all these other things that you're doing. I guess that's the how, but is there anything that you would like to say in a global way of what we need to be paying attention to about, okay, how do we do it? 
So I can give a, a, a jump into it. And I think it is a struggle. When, when I look at the trajectory of doing trauma-informed and responsive work, I think we really started with that, just get the word out. What is trauma? What is it doing to us? Then we move to, okay, how do we change that trajectory? Because really, how helpful is it to know what it's doing to us if we don't know how to build some resiliency? And I know you referred to it before, and I think it's true that the word resilience is complex. And we want to explore that in a culturally and racially sensitive way. But how do we build healthier humans, ultimately? And I think that now we're moving into what does that look like on a community society level? We have been partnering with Tufts that has a healthy outcomes from positive experience group. They do a lot of our resilience work to really look at how do we build those positive childhood experience. We know from many, many years of literature that if you have one trusted adult in a child's life, what a difference that can make. So training organizations like, for example, family shelters, our um, DHCD, which is our Department of Housing and Community Development, has been an amazing partner. They invited us in to do a five-part series and really focus on what can family shelter workers do to build resilience. The average child stays in a family shelter for 18 months. That's a lifetime in the life of a child. 18 mm. months is huge. Mm. So if a family shelter practitioner can really build, create a true community in that shelter that's healthy for that child, that is a huge step forward. So I think it's some of those steps. It's also globally looking at state systems and saying, where are the policies that are creating further trauma for our children and families. We took some steps during COVID that were very positive, increased food stamps, increased income. As those come to an end, I hope that we are able to influence state systems and federal systems to say, wait, we were doing something really good to build community resilience. Are we taking that away? And what's the impact of that? Yeah, and I'm 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 actually quite a little I'm frightened about that with uh, some of the some of the uh, stopgap programs that were created during COVID because life hasn't necessarily gotten easier for right. those families that were already living right. in the margins and I we are almost out of time and so uh, talk about a uh, I feel like I've been in very big time work with the two of you um, so. <laughs> So one of you has, uh, I'd love for you, one of you to, to uh, leave us with a thought of what you think is important for the audience that's listening to you out in our cyberspace. So go ahead. Let's see who's going to jump in. and. That's say a something. lot of pressure. I will share a quote. Um, as I shared with you all at the top of the hour, my mom has been very sick and we were reaching out to an individual who has terminal ALS and he was sharing his journey with ALS. And he said that he described himself as a reverse paranoid because he actually believes everyone is plotting his success. And one thing <laughs> I want organizations to kind of work with us to take away is we believe in you and the work that communities and organizations are doing. We are 100% behind your success. And we believe in children. We are relentlessly plotting their success in all of its different forms and hoping that we can get to true child well-being. All right, Allison, you get to have your say too. <laughs> I think I'll bring it back to the the joy stocking and the and the the small moments of joy. Um it, it's when we focus on the resiliency aspects, as you well know, Elaine, yes, um, yes. we can find so much love and strength. Um, and I think that's a real gift of working in this field is that we don't just have to focus on what went wrong, but also what goes right when we choose to show up for each other and show up with 
care and nurturance and compassion. And we all, um, we all have the opportunity to choose that, um, you know, in different ways. Um, obviously some people have more opportunity than others, but yeah. yeah. Well, I'm just going to say to my audience, I cannot think of two other women on the globe at this moment that are not a living example of what else is true in the world and living that not only in your lives, but in what you're reaching out for your community, the children, the parents, the adults. It is a true honor to be with both of you today. And I am going to keep watching and tracking all the wonderful things you're doing and also hope that you will come back for part two, because I really do want to hear about your your um, racial and equity work that you're doing um, within the state, because it sounds like it can also be an example of what we need to do everywhere. So until we meet again. Yes, Thanks, so, Elaine. Thank, thank you so you. much. Until thank you so we, much. You're welcome. Thank you both. And um, I will be back next uh, week. I'm going to be talking about, um, I'm going to actually be interviewed myself next week because my new, my second edition of my book, Building Resilience to Trauma, is going to be launched on March 14th. So Mike Sapp, our CEO, is going to interview me about the book. So I will um, see you next Monday, same time, same station. So Lane Miller-Pair is signing out. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.